0: Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you. Glad to have you guys all out here. So uh, welcome to our regularly scheduled question and answer session. And one thing that we want to let you know, as, as uh, John is making everything so high tech and all that, is that not only are we able to take your questions like we normally can, but actually we have a microphone back there um, that way your question actually is able to be heard on the stream, and uh, I'll just leave it at that because I don't want you to be Thanks. nervous. No, truth in advertising, there's a, a camera back there as well, so, um, so it'll go back and forth between us and you, especially if it gets lively, and so we're getting up there. Our level's going up, and so uh, thank you, John. Uh, that being said, uh, Pastor Brian, would you like to open us in prayer? Sure.
1: help me father we thank you for this time lord Uh, these q and a's are always beneficial lord and we just thank you for the questions that come out lord and we know that these are things that people have in their hearts lord and we just ultimately pray to your glory that the answers lord um are biblical lord and that ultimately you are edified in what we do tonight lord so we just thank you and we praise you in jesus name amen
0: amen so it looks like the first question is andrew he's chomping at the bits back there
1: Well,
2: we're live. Okay. Um, I have a question. We know Apollinarianism is heresy. That was dealt with third century. Um, But somebody asked me a question. Uh, Because Christ has a human spirit, okay, does that mean that would affect his personage personage, like he wouldn't be one person? Um, And also, uh, just for the sake of... uh, you know, making things clear, uh, explain Apollinarianism and uh, why it was dealt with the way it was dealt with. And then, I guess it's a two-part
1: question.
0: Got <laughs> it. So...
3: Hold a just... second
1: here. I have a little chart. I'm going to...
0: Oh, Pastor Brian's got a chart.
1: Let me find it. Should have it. Yes. So... Your question is about Jesus having a, having a spirit, right? I mean, because ultimately there's a, there's a saying that pretty much what he assumed is what he, what he heals. And I don't think I said that correctly. But, so he had to be a full human person like you and I. He couldn't be just this, what you would call a tertium quid, a, a third thing or other thing. He can't be that this hybrid. He can't be a superhero. He can't be a mutant, right? He has to be fully man as you and I are, right, but also fully God. So does he have a soul? He does. He does. He has a soul. He has a spirit. So, your question was again: was does it affect him like his personage? What do you mean by that?
2: Well, um, I I was having a conversation with another brother on the phone, and he said he couldn't have had a spirit because uh, um, he's one person. And I I was like, wait a minute, what? Um, Mm -hmm. So,
1: yeah, they're confusing the persons, right? Because basically, there is the person of Christ who's fully God and fully man, right? He is fully divine. The divine didn't consume, right, didn't consume the human nature, right, nor did one become lopsided, right? Otherwise, he had to be fully man, and he had to be fully God. So how that kind of happens is a mystery, but he did have a spirit, and he does have a spirit, excuse me, he does have a spirit. And so, yeah, Apollinarianism is is the fact that the thinking was overtaken by the divine side. That's what Apollinarianism is. Ultimately, it's a heresy. Now, because if you don't have the human nature of Jesus, right, you don't have redemption, like, you, you just don't, he had to do what, he had to, he had to be Adam, the last Adam, right? If he wasn't, again, if he was just like a superhero, you don't have a human being going to the cross sinless, right? You don't have uh, a substitution that we need. So, that, that answers the question, or got more?
0: Yeah, if, if I could add, do, yeah. if I could add a little bit. So, uh, the Apollinarism specifically is the idea that that Jesus is two-thirds of a human, right? Um, because the idea would be that his divinity is his spirit, right? Mm-hmm. So he's got the human body and, and human soul, but not a human spirit kind of thing. Um, and, and in reality, as Pastor Brian said, if Jesus did not assume a full humanity, which is, you know, both the material and immaterial part, then he, he can't save us. And so just to add, everything Pastor Brian said is, is exactly what you would need to say, um, the only thing that I wanted to add is it seems like the person, and this is easy to do, but it seems like the person is confusing the person person with nature, mm-hmm. right? And so the thing is, he's confusing those two categories, and you can't. Christ is one person, but in that one person subsists two natures, divine and human. And so what what this guy seems to be doing is he's defining a person as the nature. That that his person is his divinity. No, no, he's the person Jesus Christ, but he's got the two natures, um, and so that's that's what I would throw back at him. Just that you're confusing person and nature, yes. and every time you do that, you will end up in heresy. There yes. we go.
2: That that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Sorry about that. I started on the person, yeah.
0: then I got sidetracked myself.
1: So thank you for <laughs> coming up. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's a just for those who are wondering. That's like one of those deep church history questions. You know, the average person reading the Bible is probably not going to ever wonder that, but I'll tell you, in 4th century, that became a big deal, because yeah. the heretics were always attacking, really, the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. So first his humanity, and then eventually they wanted to attack his divinity, and then as Pastor Brian was saying, someone to make him some, like, third in-between, mm-hmm. you know, type of uh, being, and all those have been dealt with in history by the, the creeds and the councils, and that's mm-hmm. why it's good to know them, and that's why church history is important. But they crop up from time to time, but... Again, it's already been handled.
4: Um, one thing I would add is because um, for, for a lot of people, um, I wasn't even familiar with what the word apollinarianism meant. Right. So one of the things that's helpful in uh, detecting counterfeits of Christ is to know the true nature of Christ. So somebody can invent a different idea of who Christ is and uh, what they believe about his nature. In the banking industry, you know the monetary unit that you're looking at so well that it's easy to spot a counterfeit. And so for those of you that may be worried, man, I don't know all these things, and I didn't study all this church history and and all that stuff, which it's helpful to know, of course, but if you understand the true nature of Christ, that God is spirit, that's what scripture says, and that in Jesus Christ, um, the fullness of God dwelled, that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be let go, but rather he emptied himself, and that uh, Colossians tells us Uh, that he was the exact imprint of God, then you have to conclude that the Son of God is God who uh, was fully spirit as well. And so you see the two natures being combined. Um, Even Hebrews tells us that of the Son, God says, uh, Your throne, O God, uh, is forever and ever. Mm -hmm. And so um, you can't have a being that's partial in either way. He's he's not 50-50. Um, He's not 75-25 of one Mm -hmm. nature or the other. He's fully God and fully man, and that is how we have the mediator. And that's why there's only one mediator, the one who can mediate between God and man, who is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And uh, honestly, that's the reason for which the Pharisees wanted to crucify Jesus, because he called himself the Son of God, Scripture says, thus making himself equal with God. And so when you combine all of this um, you, you you have to come away from the scripture fully convinced that Jesus is God and Jesus is God in the flesh that he be, took on the form of a servant and humbled himself and uh, he took on our likeness so that in his perfect life death and resurrection we could be transformed back into his likeness and so um, that's just the full circle of how you work this back into the story of the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for us so while we While we understand these things and we want to proclaim these things, we want to make sure that when we're doing apologetical work or destroying false notions of Christ and idolatrous notions of him, that we take it back to why it it matters for God's glory, why it matters for salvation, why it matters uh, for the death and resurrection of Christ and how that ties into the gospel. Okay, So we want to make sure that... in my estimation, if all the scripture is centered around Christ, then all of the apologetics, all of the theology, systematic theology, biblical theology, all of that should be centered around Christ as well. Hopefully that Very maybe good. it takes away some intimidation from those of you that might not, you know, um, be familiar with some of these things.
1: Just don't let the phrase emptied himself confuse people. So yeah. but thank you, Josh, for that.
0: All right, David.
3: Um, so this is probably a softball of a question, but, um, and I know I've asked a couple of you this in text message, but I thought it would be cool to ask in front of the church. Um, so most recently I've dealt with uh, supposed Christians who believe that after salvation you no longer will sin. I just My question is, is where does that come from besides heresy? Um, but also like, what is the mix-up mix in First like John or certain passages mm-hmm. where they just seem to get it wrong, and why do they believe that?
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I. It, I think ultimately it comes from Wesleyan perfectionism, but there's been, obviously, I think you can go back to, fourth century with Augustine and Pelagius that would even say that you can, by your own willpower, you can no longer sin. But I mean, the scriptures speak about that. But even First John says that if you know if you say you're without sin, you know you, you make him a liar. So, um, it's just it's. I find it humorous because it tells you it's it's a very lopsided reading of the text, right? It's really taking these emphasis and really making a, a huge point out of the point that was not intended to be made that way. Um, but, yeah, to t- to go back to your question, the, the Wesleyan kind of perfectionist movement is more of the current kind of trend. I think, actually, one of our brothers has an uncle that holds that view uh, here, Uh I'm not going to say his name, he may have gotten over it, but for a while it was a stumbling block for him as being his uncle was holding this view that you can perfect yourself as a believer. Mm-hmm. Regardless of all the texts that he launched at him, Like <laughs> he was so, so convinced of this by other texts, right? Because, again, it goes back to a lopsided reading of the canon, right? You want to have a canonical reading of Scripture. And so that's what I'll say. I'll let Steve cover a few more things if he likes. And
0: yeah. So, yeah. First John three four is I think the misapplication of that is where they're they're getting this. It says everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, right? Uh, and so pretty much, and there's going to be other passages like that. Like the, I, I wasn't fast enough to find it, but there's one that says like he who sins is not of the Father, right? Is not saved. And, you know, that's all it says in the Greek is he who sins. But again, you have to take this with what the rest of, of John says. So in chapter one, you know, as Pastor Brian said, verse eight says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right. So on one hand, he's saying, of course, we all sin. But then in another verse, same author same letter saying, if you sin, you have no fellowship with the father. Well, obviously what it means and what he means By that is if you are in the practice of sin. If your life is that of unrepentant sin, then it proves that um, that, you know, the light's not in you. Uh, So scripturally, that's where the error is going to come from. I think the average person you run into that's a perfectionist might not have ever heard of Wesley. They -hmm. they might not have ever heard of the, you know, the one that's Pentecostals who claim that Um, they just somebody pointed out this verse to them. And so they're running with it. And that's the problem. I know
3: this is probably better if I'm but what do they do? Like, if anyone was ever to be, like, just to fly on the wall of their life like, what do you do right now? Well, what was that? Or are you
0: loving God with all your heart, my soul, and strength? Sure. You know, so so the question is, well, like, do these people ever consider that they sin? Yeah. Right? Well, they redefine sin. So biblically speaking, sin is defined four ways. you got sins of omission. Those are the sins where... We pretty much don't do what we're commanded to do. Then you have Indeed. sins of commission, where you do the things that are prohibited of us, and then you have sins of ignorance, and sin- where you don't know it's a sin but you still sin. And then there's presumptuous sins, sins of presumption. presumption, where we know what we're doing is high-handed. They've redefined it sin, redefined sin to only be the high-handed. Like I, I know what the Bible says, and I'm going out of my way and shaking my fist at God. And they convince themselves that they've not done that in like 10 15 years. I met a guy who said I haven't sinned in 9 years. I saw him sinning on the dock we were working on. You know, but but the thing is, the way he redefined sin in his mind it made sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, the un- the unrepentant piece is really important. I mean, going back to the first John one eye. And he says, after saying, if we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth in us. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that act of confessing our sins, right, is a way of living unto righteousness. Right. I mean, think about it. The, the, the Lord gave us. He gave us Christ. He died on the cross for our sins. He's been justified for a race for justification. But we've been justified but we still have a sin issue. But the repentant heart is what God wants from us, that we can continue, continue to confess our sins, and that's how we are in a state of righteousness in our, in our sanctification.
0: Anything to
4: add? Yeah, a lot of it stems from an, a failure to understand that there's different parts of salvation. Um, hmm. You know, the, the sanctification versus the glorification part. So uh, that's part of it. Um, but again, a lot, some of it does have to do with the misunderstanding of 1 John chapter 3, um, which I did preach through. So if you want to hear a full sermon on that, you can go back and listen to those sermons. Um, but it has everything to do with uh, what they were talking about, repentance. Um, what, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that I am not the boss of my life anymore, that he is my Lord, he tells me what to do, so I'm no longer going to be walking in sin; rather, I'm going to be walking in righteousness. But that is not the same thing as walking in perfection. It is my habit used to be turning away from God. Now my habit is Christ is my Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised Him from the dead. Which is why we continually say that the two, the proper response to belief in the or to the gospel being preached. When you hear that Jesus Christ died and rose again, the proper response is I no longer rebel against You, my God, my Maker, my Savior, my Judge. You've redeemed me. I now belong to you. You tell me what to do. I believe you died and rose again. Repentance and faith. Which is one of the reasons why we have to practice excommunication. When a person stops practicing righteousness and is running away from God, running away from his brothers and sisters in Christ, which 1 John tells us that part of righteousness and righteous living is loving the brothers in, in the Lord. So if you stop loving God's people... Now you're back to practicing righteousness. Now we can no longer, even if you are saved, no longer identify you as saved because you've lost the marks of a true Christian, which are repentance and faith. And so understanding that and understanding the tenses of those verbs, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's ongoing practice of righteousness and ongoing practice of lawlessness that validates whether you have been or have not been born again. And so 1 John is huge on the new birth. Whoever has been born of God believes that Jesus Christ right, is, is, the, is Lord, right, has come in the flesh. Whoever has been born of God um, loves the brothers and sisters in Christ. Whoever has been, the net effect is you will obey God's commandments. You will love the brothers and sisters in Christ. So 1 John gives evidence of if God has changed you, here's what will happen. You're not going to practice lawlessness anymore and unrighteousness. You will practice. It will be your habit to do that. But that's where sanctification comes in. God gradually removing sin from us, it shows that we're walking on a path eventually to perfection, but that doesn't happen until Christ comes again. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, struggled with sin consistently. That was his experiential daily experience. Why do I do the things that I know I shouldn't do and I don't want to do? It's sin that remains in me. So that's the human experience, um, and that's what we have to believe about the Word, and that's why we pray Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. He's the one who will deliver us and bring our final salvation. So pass out salvation, justification, current salvation, sanctification, future salvation, glorification. And it's all wrapped up in the big sphere of complete salvation. Ow.
5: Okay, so I'm just trying to get a clearer understanding of what God has in store for his church in the future, if you would based on the word of God. So, Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, I assume that that verse is talking about the millennial period. Then, if you go to Isaiah 65 verse 17 it says for I will create a new heaven and a new earth the past events will not be remembered or come to mind let me just go on with 18 then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight and then 19 and 20 then I'll stop I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people, the sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her, her nursing infant will no longer live only a few days old, or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed." So I don't understand. If God has already created a new heaven and a new earth, why would there be death during that period of time? Because I'm assuming Isaiah 65 is not the millennial period, but as verse 17 says, God has already created a new heaven and a new earth. Jerusalem has already come down, right? God is with his people, so I'm a little confused.
1: So who wants to go first? I said no more
0: questions on Revelation anymore,
1: right? <laughs> just, kidding, just kidding, Steve. I, I, I'll just refer to Steve on this one. Okay. Because he preached through it.
0: <laughs> so I mean, if, if we were to start just with Revelation twenty, I mean, I, I did two sermons on that passage. We, I mean, grammatically, there's no way to get around this. That this is future, mm-hmm. and at the same time, this is ha- this is after Christ returns. I, I know some people try to. Um, you know, claim that the book of Revelation keeps going in cycles and starts over here. Um, but grammatically, when you take these these first um, 10 verses of Revelation, there's just no getting around it. The, the millennium is defined in two ways. One, there's a resurrection of the saints. Two, Satan is completely bound, right? Um, and so, I mean, what we're reading in Revelation 20 is some sort of millennium. Now, is it literally a thousand years? That's what people can debate. Um, but that being said, you're, by you taking it to Isaiah 65, that's where the real difficulty comes. Mm-hmm. And because he talks about new heavens, new earth, talks about Jerusalem. So right away, that starts sounding like Revelation 21, right? Not Revelation 20. But then he talked about people still dying, which would sound like something that would be more in line with what we normally hear about the millennium. And so what I could tell you is it has no easy solution. Um, What I think is that the prophets saw something, and at times the New Testament expands on it, right? So there will be a new heaven, there will be a new earth, there will be a new Jerusalem, but before that happens, there's an idealized version on this earth before that comes. Um, So I could see how Isaiah 65 is using the language of the eternal state, but is actually applying to the millennium, because it's almost like a a prelude, a a taste, a a bigger taste of what's to come than what we even have right now. Um, There's no real easy way to harmonize any of this, no matter what position you have.
5: So is it reasonable to assume that during the millennial period, whether you think it's a thousand years or whatever, during that millennial period, people still need
0: saving during that period of time? It depends so again if it didn't say if it didn't say that if a person dies at a hundred, you know they'd be it 'd be said that they're cursed if it didn't say that, then you could just look at it as idyllic language that you're not going to have uh, somebody who doesn't die old and somebody who dies young because nobody's going to die period right, but then it says, but if somebody dies that's what makes me like you know pause for a second um but uh But yeah, so again, there's two views of the millennium. One view is that it's just that. Not everybody gets killed in the tribulation. So some people go into the the millennium with regular bodies. And then we who are believers, we get our resurrection bodies. And so you have both commingling the earth for the the thousand year period. That's the most popular version of it, the dispensational version. You have another version that says, actually, only we're going to be there during the thousand years. And our reigning is over like the animals and nature And stuff like that. Um, And so I can see it going both ways. I mean, some people are like, it just seems way too weird that you would have glorified bodies co-living in the same world with unglorified bodies. But then again, Jesus was glorified for 40 days, eating with his apostles and teaching them. So it's not completely out of the question. Um, we are supposed to reign with him. And we're supposed to reign with them. And it even says in chapter 2, we're reigning over the nations. So I... In what sense? I mean, some people be like, well, that rain is happening right now. Only if you have a very twisted, truncated version of what it means to rain. Yeah. Especially when we look at 1 Corinthians 4 and Paul's making it clear we're not raining. You know, um, and, and how we're waiting for that day. And, and, and then in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, don't you know we're going to rule the world? We're going to judge angels and all that kind of stuff. So that's all still future. So I'm inclined to believe that, that you will have some sort of world where we're glorified and they're not, and we're reigning them, reigning over them. And so some people will die, but some won't. But I'll tell you, Al, it is very hard to wrap my mind around it and picture it. And um, so there's just some level of humility where I think we just got to say, we're not entirely sure what this is going to look like and how much of this is idyllic language that may or may not literally represent what's going to happen. Can we at least feel comfortable that A new heaven
5: and a new earth would be very similar to the Garden of Eden before the fall
0: of man. I think so, because the way Revelation 22 describes the the new earth is as a garden. But it's even better, because chapter 21 describes it not only as a world garden. So, 22, it's a world garden. Chapter 21, it's a world city. And so it's going to be even better. Okay, thank you.
4: Yeah, if I could add something to that, and it would be more in the way of application, because... I know that there's a lot of people uh, that want to know the details of, these, um, of the end times and what our future's going to look like, and that, that's, that's good to know. But what I've found frequently is that people don't do anything with that. They're, they just want their curiosity satisfied. I'm not saying that of you. I'm just talking in general, and it's been my experience. The, the giant application is that Christ is Lord and that we are all going to bow to him at some point. And this world needs to hear of this one who is going to reign forever and ever in the new creation. And is reigning now. And is incumbent upon us to tell people that there is coming a day when you will be ruled over by Jesus. All right? Permanently in hell, in the lake of fire, if that's what you're destined to. If you don't repent of your sin and turn to him now. And so these end time pictures are meant to give us a victorious uh, picture, so that we can celebrate in the king and the Godman who is victorious, but it 's also meant to drive us to holy living, which is to proclaim him to other people so we don 't want to miss out on what we 're supposed to be doing with the theology um, as we get caught up in the details and the ins and outs of that so th- that just that 's just an encouragement to you to not lose sight of what you do. Uh, scripture says uh, that right doctrine is, is, is meant to, it accords with godliness. I believe that's in Titus. all right. The, the Godly teaching accords with godliness. And so it, it's supposed to transform us to, to be more like Christ. And so we don't um, while we study these things, we have to get back to how does this change me to be like Jesus? And, um, and that's one of the things that we don't want to lose sight of. We want to let it give us hope in Christ and we want to let it drive us, to serve the Lord and to proclaim the gospel to other people. So hopefully that's just an encouragement to you.
0: And that's a very important point to add because almost every single end time statement in the New Testament is actually tied to a command of how we're supposed to live now. Um, so if we're not seeing end times as how it could help us live in light of that now, we're missing the whole point of yeah. what eschatology yeah. <clears throat> is all about yeah and I've seen heated <clears throat> arguments where people are just
4: mad at each other and it, it does it did the opposite of what scripture is intending to do which is to to sanctify us and to make us more like Christ and get us on mission so um, that's I would just say be wary of that and be careful of that danger you don't know who you're talking to who you might light up and want to get in your face about these things because there people can be very passionate about these things which we a- applaud but let it drive you to the to, to the big picture which we all agree on. Right, that Christ is Lord, and will judge everyone according to their deeds. And uh, I thank God our deeds uh, that Christ will look at are the deeds that He's reckoned to us by faith in Him. So praise one, uh, God for that. One of the
5: other things I would add to that, I absolutely agree, but it also gives us a goal to strive for, uh, an understanding that there's there's a future for the born again mm-hmm. believer to live eternally with Christ. In God, and the spirit of God. And, and
4: That's the hope so that we don't get discouraged in this Right, world. and then,
5: yeah. so when we're going through things that are difficult, we keep that in mind. And, you know, like any other goal, it serves to drive us towards that end result. Amen. Thank Amen.
0: you. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you. All right, so, who's next?
5: Well, I'm asking this on behalf of Dessa, and she wants to know why heaven will never end.
0: Why heaven will never end. All right.
4: That's the hardest question I've ever heard. You got some good questions, (laughs)
0: Vanessa. (laughs) And just in case she has a follow-up, yeah, she should stand there. Well,
1: I mean, we would say uh, heaven does end, right? Because heaven's not the ultimate place we go to, right? It's, it's It's a temporary place, but ultimately we are with the Lord in his presence and that will never end because of who he is and what he's guaranteed to us. So
0: so the new heavens and the new, new earth.
1: Yes, new heavens and new earth to be with him. So um, he's created everything to uh, continue on. Uh, he's an eternal being. He's made us immortal, and he never determined for us to ultimately to pass out of existence. We will always exist by his power. And so he, by his great mighty strength
0: and who he is, is going to keep it going forever and ever and ever. Yeah, kiddo, things end because of death. And death is not how it's supposed to be. Death is a punishment because of sin. And so when we enter into eternal life, there will be no sin. There will be no curse, and therefore there will be no death. Well, actually, we're, we'll just be living like we were always supposed to live, mm-hmm. forever and ever and ever, and it's a gift from God. And we'll never get bored, and it's just going to be awesome. Any follow-upers? you you good. Okay. All okay. right. <laughs> All right. So we do have a couple online. Um, so we'll, and as we go over these these questions online, people in here start thinking of more that you want to ask. Um, so Mindy uh, asks, she says this, My question is, Why in the Old Testament is the idol of self not talked about along with the idols the Israelites set up and worshipped, as it is in the New Testament? And then you could reference Colossians which calls covetousness idolatry. So so Mindy's point is you could read the whole Old Testament and every time worship or idolatry, like false worship or idolatry is mentioned, it's always with regard to a statue. It's never about our sin or us worshiping ourselves. And then all of a sudden you get to the New Testament and it's rarely about statues, but it's all about worship of ourselves and what's in our heart. So the question is, why is that? Why is the Old Testament emphasis different? I, I don't know that
4: it is. I think um, when you look at the Old Testament gods, they often worship those gods because they believe those gods could provide a particular blessing to them, whether it was a sun god or the fertility god. And so they offered sacrifices that so that they could benefit from it, which just points to their greed and their wanting of more stuff or sustenance or whatever, which is, in essence, what covetousness is. I don't have... And so I want what another person has, and I'm desirous of that because I'm not content with what God has given me. So um, any idolatry, um, a lot of it is tied to uh, greed and covetousness and not trusting in the true God.
0: And if I could add to that, was Paul doing something abnormal to the Old Testament by identifying covetousness as idolatry? No. Think about what he's doing. What is the first commandment and what's the 10th commandment? These are the parentheses, the bracket ends of God's 10 commandments. The first commandment is have no other God before him. The 10th commandment is do not covet. And so pretty much at the beginning of the law, it's all about that. To have any other God before God is a matter of covetousness. It's wanting to be God. And of course, as Pastor Josh said, you know, God of war so I could be violent. God of fertility, so I could have indiscriminate uh, fornication. Um, God of wine, I want to get drunk all the time. It is a form of self-worship. It's a form of covetousness. Uh, And so it's interesting, like when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, even if if you're angry in your heart. Again, on what basis does Jesus say that? Is he doing something new? No, he's taking the Ten Commandments as a whole. Starts with worship of God and ends with covetousness. Murder in the heart is covetousness. Adultery in the heart is covetousness. So it would seem that the Old Testament, from the beginning, from the get-go, has always seen sin as exactly, in exactly the same way as the New Testament. It's just the way it manifested itself for Israel was their constant turning away from God to chase after these idols, which was really just self-worship. Yeah,
1: yeah which we and I... We and I, we and I, she and I had a discussion about this question before I came here. And so one thing I thought of is that there was also more of an emphasis on the corporate sin piece with Israel, as far as the responsibility upon the leader for their sin, having it have the implications for the rest of Israel to be strained away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, you definitely have corporate solidarity mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Good question though. Yeah, I mean, I but you know, since I saw that question before we came up here, um, I made sure to do a quick search of worship and, and self in the Old Testament, and yeah, like you know none of them come up other than idols, yeah right, yeah. but again, the Ten Commandments I think kind of sets the sets the stage on that um, The next one, and then we 'll go to them again. Um, the next one is from Fernando Medina he says i 've grown up with the understanding that we should only pray to the Father through the Son. Is it okay to pray to the Holy Spirit or to the Son? Or to pray just to God, not distinguishing the persons? A lot of people have heard that, just to let you know. That because of the way Jesus talks in the Gospel of John, you can't pray to Jesus. You can't pray to the Holy Spirit. You've got to pray to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. So the question is, is that a hard and fast rule that we're always bound by?
1: No, because you're still praying to all of them whether you're praying to the Son, you're still praying to the Father and the Spirit because there's no, there's no uh, separation from them. Um, now, I think ultimately we recognize the distinctions of, of the each, each person in the New Testament as far as what they do or how things are applied to them in a sense of what they do. But from a praying standpoint, um, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. Well,
0: and I think if you could find even one example in the New Testament of somebody praying to Jesus game over on, on that. And that example, the quickest one I could think of is when Stephen was getting stoned, when he's being killed, he prays directly to Jesus. And John chapter I mean Acts chapter seven, verse fifty-nine, it says, while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Mm-hmm. That's a prayer.
1: Yeah.
0: It's a prayer to Jesus. In fact, that's what Jesus prayed to the Father. Mm-hmm. Stephen's now praying to Jesus. So if you're going to say it's wrong to pray to Jesus, well, then Stephen was wrong here. But I don't think you could claim that.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So just to add on
4: to that, prayer is us talking to God, and God's word is him talking to us. We don't hear God talk to us in prayer, uh, just to make that clear. But it is us talking to God, and God speaks by his word. But aside from that, you see people talking to Jesus in the New Testament, <laughs> which uh, if it were forbidden to pray to Jesus, we would be for those people should have been forbidden to talk to Jesus. But Jesus is very much alive and well now. And so imagine if he were here in front of you. Like, hey, Father, I can't talk to him directly. Like That would be absurd, right? So if you understand prayer is talking to, um, to our God, then uh, I, I, don't, I don't see why it would be wrong um, to pray to Jesus. Um, again, Hebrews calls him God. So um, our understanding of God, while there are three persons in God, our God is one, and so uh, when we address God, uh, when we see people addressing God in the Old Testament, they weren't address- they were addressing the entire Trinity, they weren't addressing just one of the persons of God, mm-hmm. and so that should not change. Good question.
0: Yeah. All right.
5: Dessa wants to know what our resurrection bodies will be like.
1: Cool. Glorious.
4: slimmer Um, (laughs) chiseled (laughs) chiseled
0: (laughs) well 1 Corinthians 15 says that they will be immortal which means they cannot die incorruptible meaning they can't break down Mm -hmm. um, and undefiled meaning they can't sin so it will be a body that can do no wrong that doesn't get hurt Mm -hmm. and that uh, can never die and then you know it, it also says that our resurrection body is going to be like Jesus' resurrection body. He's the first fruits, We're the harvest. Mm-hmm. And so you could look at things that he did after he was resurrected. He could be talking to somebody and then poof, vanish and appear 100 miles, you know, further away in Galilee. Um, he could ascend up into the clouds, which means he could fly. And yet he wasn't a ghost, even though he could walk through a wall, because then they could touch him and he could eat. And so our resurrection bodies are going to be really cool is all I got to say. Yeah. And
4: Scripture talks about us being clothed in white robes. Not that we're going to walk around in bath robes. Um, I don't think that's what Dang it means. It. But I think it means we'll be we will be clothed in perfection. And I I, um, I believe with all my heart that uh, when we are transformed, I think we will shine with the glory of Jesus, the mm-hmm. perfection. So we may not we may be almost like the pre Adam and Eve where the brightness shines so much that we have no need for clothes because God's radiance is just shining in perfection out of us, and we're, we're, uh, we're showing that. And uh, that, that's really what it means to glorify, uh, partly to glorify God and display His image, His likeness. Uh, when God made us in His likeness, I think that's part of what it included, just a brilliance. And Jesus gives a glimpse of that at the Mount of Transfiguration when His, when His deity just shone through His skin and just lit Him up, you know? But we'll recognize each other. Maybe we'll have to wear sunglasses. I don't know.
6: <laughs> Dessa wants to know if we'll have super strength in our resurrection bodies.
0: The Bible doesn't say, but I would think so. And here's why I say that. right? And I know this is, is a leap. But the Holy Spirit is said to be a down payment in us. Just a small little piece of the amount of the Holy Spirit we're going to have when we have our resurrection bodies. So if you think of the things that the apostles were able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's just a down payment. That's a small little first fruits of what it's going to be later. And by whose power was Samson able to do the super strong things? It was when he was filled with the Spirit. I would assume that too is just a first fruit, a small little fraction. So I would assume that based on that, when we all get the fullness that we're supposed to have with the Holy Spirit, it's going to make all that look like nothing. And then on top of that, we know that angels are really powerful, right? And really strong. And yet we're going to be judging angels, which implies that we're only lower than the angels right now. He's made us a little lower than the angels because of sin and so forth. But when we're glorified and we're like Christ, we're going to be above the angels, which I would assume means we're going to be more glorious and stronger than they are as well. So, yeah, I think super strength is implied. Yeah. and the I, Avengers got nothing on it I, well I, I'll, I'll
4: modify that just a little bit no, I'm not disagreeing with him it will appear to be super compared to what we are now yeah. it will actually I think be a return to what we're supposed to be if that makes sense what normal humanity what normal like right now we are sub I mean we're fully human but we're sub par what we're supposed to be we're supposed to be perfect without sin uh, sin the condition of sin causes our brain power to fade causes our physical strength uh, to, to go away so we will get back to where God intended which is super compared to this but really that's supposed to be the norm so what we experience now is subpar for the game if you will allow me to use that term and so'll be uh, a return maybe even greater than before creation I don't know but uh, it, it, we will be as fully human as God intended us to be I mean I'm sure noah was sorry I'm sure
1: <laughs> noah was pretty strong building an ark by himself
0: yeah yeah. With just his boys. Just yeah. his boys, yeah. yeah. Even him. <laughs>
4: I mean, imagine how tired we get after 80, 90 years of living. Those guys in the Old Testament, they lived to be, what's the oldest guy, 969 Sixth, years old? Three. Methuselah. Methuselah. Yeah. Like, imagine how youthful you would be at two to 300, 400, 500, and oh, I'm over the hill, I'm 500. <laughs> right? Yeah, they didn't um, throw their backs out with sneezing until they at least hit Yeah, can you imagine looking at me and I'm like, I'm 450 like Dracula, right? That guy never ages, right? But that, the, imagine being five, six, 900,000 900, years old and we're still as fully strong as we were before. Yeah. That, that, that's incredible to think about, that God will do that for us. And it's incredible to think what sin has done to us. Sin has ruined that. God made us to display his glory. He's an eternal God. He made us to live forever. He's put eternity in the hearts of men, scripture says. And so I, we can't wait for that eternal state when this is what it was supposed to be like. Darn you, devil! Go to where you're supposed to go, you know. So we look forward to that when we reign with Jesus.
1: Yeah, just something to kind of add on top of that too. When we when when uh, archaeologists have found, you know, the Neanderthal man, where the the the, the face structures were really big, the bone was thick, uh, broad heads, that kind of thing, and they say that's what we used to be like we've evolved into a greater species, but really the theory is, well, I don't say the theory, I think it's the biblical truth that that's how our head size is supposed to be if we lived to be 900 years old. That's the thing. That's how big and burly these guys were living that many years. Your bones continue to grow in your face. We have smaller bones because we die younger now.
0: And so those boxing matches would have lasted like oh, 100 man. rounds with those big old skulls. You could just yeah. absorb
4: those hits all day long. Yeah. So, well, I heard a pastor once time say that Jesus was the strongest human that ever
0: lived because he was not tainted by
4: sin whatsoever. Yeah, I'm sure.
0: Can you imagine that? Well, and every time they tried to arrest him, he was just able to slip away from them. <laughs> you know, like, like he didn't have to escape or anything. He would just walk through yeah. a crowd. And for Jesus
4: sure. said, no one takes from my life from me. Mm-hmm. I lay it down. So that's that's strength
0: that none of us have ever seen. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: All right. Well, good question. Um, John.
6: All right. This is going to be the toughest one you've heard all night. Yes. Uh, Who is your favorite Christian
0: author and your favorite Christian book by that author? Hmm. Hmm. I think you've read more than all of us.
1: (laughs) I would say. um, Yeah. Right now, uh, right now, there's a guy. Ready? He he unfortunately died. uh, Tragic for us, great for him. But he died uh, about six years ago. His name is John Webster, and he's written some stuff that it was really just. um, It's one of those things. At least for for myself personally, that it's intellectually just astute, but it's it brings your heart with it. Right? It's not like this very dry theology, which you can kind of read sometimes, but he had this ability of taking these both together and just exalting them both together. So basically, the stuff you're reading is so rich, but it's ultimately resulting in praise and adoration of Christ. So his name is John Webster. Uh, it's called God Without Measure. He wrote two volumes called God Without Measure, or the, the, key, the key works I'm talking about, he did.
0: That's hard. Because um, there's some authors that write so incredibly well that you don't want to put their book down. And, and there's like about 10 in my mind. But then the author that has impacted me the most, I would think recently, isn't one of those. Like his writing's hard to follow. I had to spend like an hour to read seven pages, which drove me nuts, but the book leveled me up. And so I'm going to go with that one. Michael Horton's uh, Lord and Servant mm. was just an amazing book about Christ. It's pretty much Christology. Um, which, you know, can help me answer questions like, like Andrew's, um, but it was just so much more than that. And the way it tied all the scripture together, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you still have to read that one. It it was compelling. And then I know this is going to make some people like freak out, but some of the stuff N.T. Wright Mm -hmm. writes is absolutely compelling. Like just how it's presented as this story and you read it and you're just blown away.
4: Yeah.
0: Um. I wouldn't say he's my top, though. He's got some weird stuff. Um, but so, he's
1: right on some things.
0: He right? is right on some things, yeah. So I don't know. I'll go with Horton right now. Lord and servant. Hmm. Um, I know we talked about this before. My my favorite author of all
4: time is uh, John Piper. Hmm. Um, I've read the majority of his works. And uh, while well, I've read books on, you know, a lot of the modern-day Reformed uh, pastors, you know, John Maca- a lot of Johns. <laughs> Uh, John MacArthur, uh, Alistair Begg, I've read Albert Muller's books, I read Puritans, um, and all that stuff. And they've, they've all been helpful in their own way. Um, but there's, there's no one that has taught me more about preaching the supremacy of Christ in, in all my sermons. There's some other books that were helpful by another author. But um, just the delight that he has in sharing Christ, mm. um, delighting in God, because um, that's what we were created for. It's to reflect God's glory, but also to delight in God's glory from which our glory is derived. And so um, just every that theme just runs through his books over and over. He just yeah. waves that banner high. And it's contagious. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I, I want more of Jesus. I I want to be happier in him. I want to hate my sin more. I want to preach Christ more. I want to evangelize more. I want to pastor more for the glory of Christ and other people delighting in him. And so the way that he, all his different topics and books, whether it's on pastoring or preaching or evangelism or not wasting your life or not wasting uh, whatever it is that he preaches about. uh, It all focuses on delighting in Christ from different angles. And uh, there's a lot of... uh, Puritans, that there was just something that they were known for, and this is what John Piper is known for. It's it's radically transformed the way that I preach, the way that um, I disciple, the way that I lead worship. It's it's changed everything. And so uh, there's not necessarily one particular book. Um, he wrote a great book on justification. He um, he wrote a great book on uh, being born again. Uh, brothers were not professional. Seen and savoring Jesus Christ. The supremacy of Christ in sex. The supremacy of Christ in preaching. Don't waste your life. Future grace. Like The list just goes on and on. Desiring uh, God. Yeah, desiring God. One yeah. of his big ones. Yep. Um, and that's what his ministry is named after. And so um, I, I, would, I would say if you can get your hands on it, it the, the, it's, it's not complicated reading. No. But it, it, it's transformative in the way that he presents Christ. Um, in all things, and it it just warms your heart to jesus
1: yeah it was it was piper 's works that really oriented my heart to, to be a pastor, like it was like he was putting the through the lord the, the finishing touches on getting my heart to wanting to be okay, Lord, this is what I want to do, yeah. so yeah, definitely very very awesome yeah. if you grab
4: any book it it, it doesn 't matter what you grab by him I would, His book on justification is probably one of the more harder ones to read, but if you just grab any of his books um they're they 're a delight, and you'll you 'll hunger for more. Of
0: that, and I'll just add to that. His most recent book is what they call his magnum opus, his life's work. It's called Providence. It's a thousand pages, but it's a short thousand pages. <laughs> um, it reads so fast, yeah. and it really contains all of his thinking about all this stuff. Yeah. And it was just a really, really worth worthy read. Yeah. Um, and it's not even that expensive. So if you want to like dive into Piper and get the same encouragement that you're hearing. I would just say start with Providence, and you're going to have like 80 percent of what Piper is all about there.
1: Yeah. yeah, the actual PDF version of the book is free at DesiringGod.org.
4: Yeah, a lot of his books are free in PDF format online. Yeah,
3: that would have been helpful before I bought them. But yeah. <laughs> well, I mean they're PDF format. I just, I just got two
6: of them in today. So yeah, they're,
0: they're I mean they're PDF format. You know, I you I prefer carry. books. Yes, thank you. I got
6: more to add to the list.
0: So so I, I had to give a preliminary book review on Providence, and then somebody brought up when I was giving it in my class, like, you know, you could have got this for free on PDF. I'm like, yeah, but if I have this in my jacket and somebody shoots me, I'm good. So there's a benefit to having a big, thick book. (laughs) So, Fernando. Uh,
6: This is for for Steve. uh, You and I have always talked about that science... Proves the existence of God. I mean, science has its place. Every time the scientists so come out with their theories about bang, big bangs and all that sort of stuff, all they're doing is hitting themselves up the head and proving the existence of God. <laughs> Every time they're trying to prove God doesn't exist, they always prove the existence of God. So that's what that does. So would it be safe when, because you were talking about, sort of goes in with this one here, we're talking about how... God, obviously, since he is science, he is matter, he is everything, he is everything we are, is because he is, holds us together just with his thought, so when he goes in and out, like you said, he, all of a sudden he appeared 100 miles away, all that sort of stuff there, so the scientists, you, you hear about all these uh, theories, that uh, they're weird string theories and, and other dimensions and all that. So, they're basically, when they're doing this with math and all that, and they, they're saying that they could try to prove this, they're basically, I, I, it would be safe for me to say, yeah, you're just ex- proving the existence of God because this is what he's done when he goes this place. There are, if you want to call it other dimensions, this places that we don't see yeah. because it's with, where God dwells that we don't see. So, they're proving that. Would I be safe to say that?
0: Kind of. In so, you've got to understand, like, any definitive scientific discovery is only going to point towards that. Right. Um, the things that point away from God are theories, interpretations, and stuff like that. And usually what they do with those is it's, it's called like the God of the gaps fallacy. So for example, it's clear that the universe has not been here forever. That's what atheists said 100 years ago. Matter oh, matter's always existed. The universe has always been here. But then they realize with Doppler shifts that's impossible because the universe is expanding. And so there would have been a point where – like a point zero – and then with cosmic background radiation and all that stuff, they realized, wait a second, there was a time when none of this was here, and then boom, it was here. So they're like, well, what do we do with that? Because for time, there has to be motion and matter, and there was a time where that was not, and now it's here, and what could cause that? But they don't want to say God, and so what do they do? They're like, well, the multiverse, and then Spider-Man gets in they on just just push the co- <laughs> They just push the cause back another level. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what they do is they surmise, well, okay, this universe exists, but if there's like An infinite amount of possible universes that also exist. One of them is bound to exist, just like this one. That's going to have the circumstances of this one. That's going to create the life of this one. And you think about that. They might shroud that in like philosophical and scientific vocabulary, but that is really stupid when you think about it. And, And you still have the same problem. Well, where did those come from? Well, they just were. Well. Something had to get it started because you can't have an infinite regression, you know. And so everything we see shows that things had to have a beginning. Um, Anything that began to exist had to have a beginner. Exactly. So, and and this goes back to stuff that Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s was talking about. You have things that are contingent. And if there's anything that's contingent, then there needs to be at least one thing that's necessary. Something that's necessary is uncaused, unsustained, right? Just is. And that's God. And people want to say, well, how do we know the universe isn't what's necessary? That the universe is unsustained and uncaused? Because it moves. And because it moves, it is, it, it, it's dependent, right? It's a contingent thing. And so therefore, there has to be a necessary being. God, all they've tried to do is just say, well, maybe the multiverse is necessary. But still, the multiverse is in movement if it exists, yeah. which it doesn't. So no matter what, they can't escape it. It's just dumb. But in their mind, it's, they think it pushes you away on your questions, um, as far as like teleportation. And I, obviously, um, there's multiple dimensions. The fact that angels are able to come from heaven and appear here. And if you think about it, all the UFO videos and stuff like that, I, I, I believe those. I just don't believe it's extraterrestrials, you know, demons or fallen angels can appear. They can do all sorts of things because they are dimensional beings that are beyond the four dimensions that we are confined by. Isn't it interesting that, uh, Aliens somehow fly across the universe only to kidnap drunk people in the woods (laughs) and then to convince convince them of new age stuff that, uh, you know, pretty much the Hindus and all these guys believe. Really? And yet when you talk to scientists, how are the aliens going to get here? You know, if they're going even 90% the speed of light and they run into a single gram of hydrogen in space, it's going to be a 60 megaton nuclear explosion. How are they going to get here? Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, well, space folding. Okay, how are they going to do that? Antimatter matter and matter engines. So, okay, great, Captain Kirk. Good for you. But the point is, you still end up with the same problems. These supposed aliens come and they start teaching the same spiritual nonsense. Like they're really coming over here to teach people paganism. They're going to spend that much fuel. And then, you know, and, and it, it, I'm just telling you, yeah. it's absurd on its face. So the fact that some of our pilots will be flying around and say, we see an object, we can't track it that shows you the the type of teleporting in and out and and all the type of movements you could do if you're a dimensional being beyond our dimensions. I've once, uh, I I found this very fascinating. See, we live in a 3D world, but imagine if if, like this piece of paper is its own world and it's two dimensional, but I'm three dimensional. I could stick my finger through this paper and bring it out at will. But to the little two dimensional flat beings that live in here, my finger's not going to look like my finger. It's going to look like a disc. And they're not going I'm going to be able to do things and move in ways that their little rules of physics in this two-dimensional world can't possibly fathom. It's the same type of thing when we're dealing with, with angelic beings that are beyond our dimensional mm-hmm. capabilities. And so again, not hard, um, but hopefully that answered your question. No, it's, it's, it's just, it was, I just, um,
6: just want to make sure I was saying the same so I don't sound like I'm like space did yeah. when I wanted to do that. But yeah, it, it proves the existence of God. science. What
4: a lot of people don't realize is that Christianity is what gave rise to the sciences. Yep. Scripture tells us that the heavens declare the handiwork of God. And Scripture tells us to have dominion over creation. So we rule this world under the rule of God that declares His glory. So as we study creation, which God told us to do, have dominion over it, we are doing, what, I'm studying creation because this declares the glory of God. So really, studying math, studying uh, the way water flows, the way the atmosphere is and the universe, that's also that I can know my God better. Right. That, that's the point of studying the sciences, which is what we should be teaching our children. Mm-hmm. When you go to school to study this, you are, you are learning how awesome your God is. Right. So that they will not get bored with the subjects and they will be amazed at the God that they're learning about, even if their teachers aren't aware that they're teaching them that. Okay, So that's the way mm-hmm. that we need to raise our kids. Very important to understand, parents, okay? That that's why they're going to school to learn about God, okay? Whether the teachers know or not. But Christianity gave rise to the sciences, right? Logic. Logic itself says you can't self-create. You can't exist and then make yourself if you don't exist already to make your... It's just, it's a nonsensical statement. So you have to have an uncreated being create everything. The, the, The writers of Scripture... We're smarter than the scientists and the brainiacs of today and the theologians of old. They believe that God created everything ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God brought everything, meaning no pre-existing material. It's not like he took a lump of clay and then, that was already there and made everything. He called it into existence by his very word. And scientists will even now say, wow, every, every, there was nothing before and was, all of a sudden there was something. And some have even said there was even no uh, uh, singularity point that from which the Big Bang came. That there was nothing, but somehow everything is. And so they try to rationalize: How did nothing become so unstable that it made something? Mm-hmm. And, and they fail to realize that there is someone who generated that. Without saying it, they're realizing that something generated everything out of nothing. The first. Move. And so now, yeah. So now scientists, some of them, are even starting to say that there was no singular point. There was nothing. And then somehow that got created. So it's just willful sinfulness is what it is. It's the unrighteousness in their heart that causes them to suppress the truth that's revealed in creations. Romans 1 tells us that. It's wickedness mm-hmm. that they refuse to look at the evidence before them that declares the glory of God to them and they don't want to know God. Mm-hmm. That's that's really all it is. So it's not that they're stupid, it's not that they don't have enough information. It's willful sin, and so Mortal it's a, it's and it is it's a heart problem, and so it's important that we even call people out on it at times, lovingly and helpful. Listen, there is a God. It's it's your own sinfulness that doesn't want to admit it. What are you afraid of if you believe that there's a God that made you and you're accountable to Him? And and go just assume that they know that there's a God and that they just don't want to admit it when you're talking to people. So um, anyway, hopefully that helps, but. Uh, the, the next time you go to the sciences or you're looking through a telescope, let it make you wonder of who God is. And you're in the mountains and you see the trees. You're out in the desert and you're, you see the sand in an anthill. Ugh, they're biting me. Look what God made. These creatures are biting me, right? Wherever you're at in creation, the ocean, okay? You're staring into your wife's eyes. My God has made
0: some beautiful things, right? <laughs> I'll steal that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. That and was, and, and uh, if I could just add one quick thing. Yeah. In my Genesis series, I dealt with all the possible objections they bring up. What about Starlight? What about the fossil record? What, all that's there. So just throwing it out there. You could listen to it all on Sermon Audio for free. Every single one that they bring up um, that, that I'm aware of was, was answered. And answered biblically and scientifically. And, 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 and I like go over the presuppositions. And, and it's pretty much like specifically how, like, what are the facts and what is interpretation, and uh, and what drives their interpretation? So it's all like there's answers to all this stuff. Some of the most brilliant scientists in the world right now are young Earth creationists with their PhDs from top level universities um, in in the high sciences and the hard sciences. And so, I mean, the guy who made an MRI, or who made the MRI machine, Christian. You know, um, some of the best guys who've discovered things in genetics, Christian. And as Pastor Josh said. The people who all got the scientific revolution started in the first place 400 years ago, Christians. Yeah, and here's the thing. Today's modern
4: thinkers, they they try to dictate how the conversation is going to go by setting up the rules. I saw Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about how, look, when, the further degree you get, the less you uh, believe in God. So the smart people don't. And mm-hmm. these are the ones, you know, and, and he considers nothing that the small percentage of Christian uh, people with degrees he, he won 't even consider what they have to say because they 're in the minority, so in his mind he 's already limited the conversation who 's allowed to participate in it that 's just that 's not the way that you you do intellectual uh, conversations and and have uh you know good debate yeah, good debate on these kind of things
0: so um, it 's not even how good science works oh. science always changes when you got the one guy who 's the anomaly saying you got it all wrong and he proves it but yeah. the math and the fact that they then look at it. And listen to him are like, mm. oh wow, he's right. Yeah, and the, and the
4: guy's gonna dictate who gets to participate in the conversation, which is everybody who agrees with him. So everybody yeah. agrees with me. because well, you yeah. set the ground rules for who's allowed to speak and who's allowed to contribute. Yeah. Or you're in your own echo chamber. So if, if you're not aware that that's what they do, all you gotta do is go on YouTube and watch these guys, and you'll hear them shape shift. And well, you know, the multi, well, maybe our universe is because another universe bumped into it, and boom, that's the big bang. Mm-hmm. Uh, come on you're just you're just going to regress back further and further and okay well now maybe there's many multiverses and, and, so, and so what they yeah what they try to do is basically uh assign the attributes of god to creation it's always been always will be it's timeless and uh, it's all powerful and it just so um anyway they don't want to assign those things to god and so they place them on creation And that's idolatry
1: yeah, much of modern science is, is uh, not data-driven. It's it's uh, imagination-driven. It comes down to.
0: All right. Any other one, questions? One, one more? more? One. There was one from David. Um, do you want to ask it up there, or do you want us to just read it? Oh, Raymond does? Oh, look. Yeah, but we already forbid that. Actually, I'm not seeing Raymonds.
4: Um, David asked, why will Jesus still have the holes in his hands and feet when we see him?
1: To remind us. Never forget
0: where you came from. And that he's not Pinocchio. <laughs> no, but that, yeah, I mean, I think so that we would always... Because some people look at the fact that Jesus still had his holes... To say, oh, we're going to still bear our scars and our resurrection bodies. No, I think Jesus stands out as special so that for all eternity we'll never cease to be amazed and thankful over what it took for us to, to be given the eternal life in the first place. Yeah. That was an easy one. So does Raymond have one up there? Yeah, I, I don't see it. I don't no. see
4: yeah, if you could go up to the microphone and
0: ask for him, we'll take that. It'd be a lot easier.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's why he was <laughs>
3: hesitant. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and time's up.
3: <laughs> okay, so it says in uh, Revelation thirteen seven, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority was given him over every t- tribe, tongue, and nation. How do we reconcile this scripture when other scripture tells us we are more than conquerors and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church? Sorry.
0: Okay. Why do you guys want that one? What's, what's this question again? So, so the question was: if the antichrist is going to rule every nation, tribe, and tongue, then how do we reconcile that with the passages that say that right now we're more than conquerors? Got it. Well, two, probably two different time periods in the overall battle. I would just say it's a
4: matter of understanding the timeline.
1: Because the charge in the beginning goes that that, that to those that do conquer, they'll be granted this, right? So, I mean, we have those passages in the beginning to consider that uh, there will be those that will be conquered by this. But there will be those that won't be. And those are the ones that are going to be having the the crown.
0: Well, and the passage that references us being more than conquerors is Romans 8, which is about the perseverance of the saints. That's right. We're more than conquerors in that we make it to the end. And so it's the same thing when Jesus says in Revelation, you know... To the one who conquers, I will give him right to sit with me on my throne as I sit with the Father on his throne. The one who conquers or the one who overcomes, love that song, is the one who endures to the end. And yet it's the Holy Spirit that makes us endure to the end. So the Antichrist ruling the world and killing us actually proves we're more than conquerors. Because we don't deny the Lord. He says, the one who is faithful to me unto death, to him I will give the crown of life. Mm -hmm. That's in Revelation 2. That's how we conquer. And then, of course, we'll, we'll bask in the reality of that conquest uh, when the resurrection happens.
4: Yeah. yeah. Uh, just let me give you an analogy. Imagine you're running a long race, and at times it looks like you're ahead, and other times people surpass you. But somehow you are guaranteed that you would be victorious at the end, that regardless of what it looked like throughout the race, you were going to win. Um, that's what God, in essence, has done for us. Although we are persecuted and pressed down and shaken up, we, we, we are not destroyed. Um, we are promised to be victorious in the end, no matter what comes at us. And Scripture says, uh, uh, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. No height nor depth nor angel or principality. Um, There is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God, um, which belongs to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So um, just a matter of of looking at uh, final victory versus, you know, we're going to win the war, but there might be momentary battles that it looks like we're losing. But ultimately, the, the war will be won by Jesus Christ, and we will be victorious. Hmm. Amen.
0: Well, that was, a, oh, you got one more? Yeah, it was actually a
3: two-parter. Of course. Uh, he said, <laughs> also in Revelation 6, 10 through 11, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? His answer was, in 11... Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Is it saying that all of his children that serve him and are alive at the time will be killed in the flesh? How do we reconcile these statements and the thoughts they provoke?
0: Quick answer is Revelation 6, the seals except for the seventh seal, seem to match what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, before the tribulation. So the seals aren't in the tribulation. They reflect what's happening throughout the whole church age. Christians have been killed really for 2,000 years. And so the martyrs are saying, how much longer are you going to let this happen? And God's answer is, once the full number of you has come Mm -hmm. in. God knows the number. He has a number set of how many of us will be killed for the faith. Obviously, that number is going to spike during the tribulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not a passage that's limited to the tribulation. And it certainly doesn't mean that every Christian gets killed. But I would say that chapter 11 implies most Christians get killed because if the two witnesses represent the church, in some sense, it's going to look like they're dead, that the church is dead. Mm-hmm. So I would I would assume that the persecution is going to get so bad at the end that it'll look that way. But it doesn't mean that every Christian is going to die. For sure. I guess that's the benefit of preaching through it. A lot of it's still up here. That's
4: awesome.
0: Anything you want to add? Mm -hmm. Would you like to close us in prayer? Yeah.
4: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things that we were able to talk about tonight and just look at in Scripture. I pray that, Lord, as we hear these things, that we incorporate them into our living, that we incorporate them into our worship, that we incorporate them into our evangelism, so that we can give reasonable answers to those who you are drawing to you. Father, I pray that, um, that Christ was front and center today, that your spirit would just work in us uh, by the scriptures that were talked about and by the questions that were answered. Thank you for everyone participating. It's just a pleasure to be able to get together with uh, your family, Lord, our brothers and sisters, uh, to be able to discuss scripture. Um, Lord, rather than just let things lingering in our minds for a long time without having... Good answers, or at least provoking us to go even further. Lord, maybe some of the answers we gave weren't uh, fully satisfying, but Lord, maybe it'll just drive us to go to your word more and, and seek uh, better answers. And we pray that that would be the case. Mm-hmm. Lord, if anyone was watching today that has never heard of Christ and they just happen to accidentally pop in a line or somebody recommended it, God, uh, the stream, Lord, we pray that, that they would know of Christ and that somehow, Lord, you would use what was talked about today to draw them to you. And bring them to faith and repentance, Lord, because you, as Scripture teaches, you will, you will reign forever and ever. And uh, of your kingdom there will be no end. As Handel wrote a beautiful song about it, he reigns forever and ever. And so, uh, Lord, we give you glory. This is all for your glory. And uh, when we just go away in peace tonight, Lord, in your peace, knowing that we are at peace with you. May that give us subjective peace where we can just rest tonight and sleep well and wake up refreshed to serve you tomorrow. Lord, we look forward to being together in your house on Sunday in this building, Lord. Um, I should say, Lord, with your people worshiping and singing our hearts out and hearing the word and continuing this transformation, the sanctification that we talked about tonight, Lord, um, until you come again, Jesus, when you come again to transform us completely to be like you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you dwell on us now causing us to hate our sin, interpreting or illuminating Scripture for us and helping us to understand what you have composed through authors uh, of the Scripture. And so, our triune God, we love you. We adore you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We give you worship now. We give you our lives. And we give this time over to you for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.